That question to start off this morning. What happens after you die? It's an age-old question. I think every person has wandered it at one point or another. But how can you answer that question? The answer is not by any empirical evidence. There are no tests you can run to really find out what happens after death because we're talking about a medical, a metaphysical reality, rather. You can't touch, taste, see, or hear the afterlife. You can't rely on personal experience. You have to go by faith. Whatever you believe is based on faith. And atheists often ridicule people for having faith, for believing in something they can't see. But realize, even the atheist relies on faith for whatever he or she believes about the afterlife. The atheist has no way to verify that nothing lies beyond the grave. You cannot prove with a scientific method that nothing happens after death. The atheist does not really know there's no afterlife. It's something he or she chooses to believe based on faith according to their own worldview. So as Christians, you should not feel the need to apologize for having faith. You should not be embarrassed by it or or feel intellectually inferior. Realize everyone's in the same boat when it comes to the afterlife. It's by faith. In fact, you should be encouraged because at least your faith rests on the sure word of God. Of course, attacks against the faith will always come. But these are as old as time itself, so it really shouldn't surprise you to see people in the world denying God or judgment or hell. They don't like the idea of being held accountable for how they live this life, so it's easy to just deny it and move on. It's no surprise to us when they ridicule the faith. I'll tell you what's more surprising, though. It's when people who claim to believe in God, even claim to be Christians, when they attack and ridicule their own faith for believing in an afterlife or a judgment or or hell. This can be a bit more mind-boggling. I mean, I get when when atheists deny God and, and judgment, that... Makes sense, but how would a Christian do so? It's actually the same answer. They too want to live how they want to live for themselves, but they find it a little more convenient to keep a basic notion of God around. And as strange and as inconsistent as this is, it actually is also not new. Not only has the faith survived many attacks from the outside, but also from the inside as well, down through the centuries. And even in more recent years, for example, have you heard of the fundamentalist modernist controversy? Probably not, but I'll tell you just a little bit about it. It's in the 1900s, but even before that, in the, in the 1800s, the scientific discoveries, new, new theories like evolution in Europe, causing a lot of people in Europe to start to deny and doubt the Bible and turn away from the faith. And coming from atheists, that's nothing new, but, but these modernist beliefs, they started to infiltrate the church. And so especially from Germany, you had lots of scholars and theologians And they still believed in God, but they were abandoning all the central tenets of the faith. And it all just became a big myth. But they still believed in God, but everything else was pretty much a myth. And the influence of these Germans now made its way to America in the early 1900s and caused quite a stir. And there's always been atheists who deny God and deny the Bible. But now there is a special breed of people who still call themselves Christians, still believed in God, still wanted to stay in the church, but they denied pretty much everything else. Everything slightly supernatural was was denied as myth. If it couldn't be seen by the eye or verified by the scientific method, it's just an old legend or fable and it's not true. So these modernists ended up denying the inspiration of the Bible. It didn't really come from God. It's not the word of God. They denied the virgin birth of Jesus. And of course, that's not possible. They denied the atonement of Jesus on the cross. And sure, some guy named Jesus may have really died on a cross, but the whole notion that he was a substitute sacrifice 
for our sin, appeasing the wrath of God. I mean, that, that's bogus. Now, surprisingly, they denied the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus because that, that's just not possible. Have you seen someone rise from the dead? No. And, of course, they denied every single miracle of the Bible because you, you just don't overturn the laws of nature. It doesn't happen. They denied it all. Now, if you're going to deny all this, it makes you wonder, why would you still call yourself a Christian? Why, why stay in the church? Why not just abandon the faith altogether? But these people, they still believed in a God and wanted to stay in the church. Although, not surprisingly, they redefined the church as well. The church became more of a social club that promoted social justice. The notion of saving souls from hell, that's, that's bogus as well. Really, the, the church is to alleviate suffering in this life. You can probably see how such a belief system, though, is very self-defeating. And if you're going to deny all that, and if the church is reduced to a social justice organization, then, then why bother with it? I mean, there are other social justice organizations to choose from. And why are you holding on to a book that's filled with so many errors and myths? There's really no good answer to that question, if that's what you believe. And that's why the church today in Europe is largely dead. You realize that in Europe, it was the center for Reformation and revival in the 1500s and 1600s. But now, all those churches are pretty much dead and empty. Why? Because they're irrelevant. Well, why would you give your time, your money, your energy to a mythical book filled with errors that no one really believes? Ironically, like the Bible says, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then your faith is worthless. And that's what they think. It is worthless and they've just abandoned the faith. At least in that regard, they're consistent. But thankfully, this didn't fully happen in America. I mentioned how these modernist beliefs started to infiltrate America in the 1900s. But thankfully, a group of faithful believers stood up, known as the fundamentalists, and they affirmed the truth. They affirmed the fundamentals of the faith. Although many churches and seminaries fell prey to liberal Christianity, Many stood strong and contended for the faith, and the true church in America today owes a lot to them. A special note, the fundamentalists were helpful in pointing out a great inconsistency among the modernists, namely that their disbelief in the supernatural was actually based on faith. Because again, true, you may not have seen someone rise from the dead with your own eyes, that's true, but you also have no way of empirically disproving the claims of the Bible. You cannot disprove the supernatural that happened in the past. Especially if there is a God, he surely can violate the laws of nature that he made. That's not a problem. So when it comes down to it, their rejection of the supernatural is actually just as much based on faith, not science, like they claim. In the end, they don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't believe because they don't want to be held accountable by a just and a holy God. They don't believe because they want to keep living according to their own will, to satisfy their own desires. But you know, this too is nothing new. Attacks will continue to come against the faith from without, from within. But all this goes to say, it helps to remember why people reject. And it helps to remember that it's nothing new. It happened in the 1900s, the 1800s, the 1700s, even back to the time of Christ. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at this morning. Believe it or not, in Christ's own day, there was a group of Jews, religious Jews. They believed in God, but they denied pretty much everything else. They liked the idea of a little religion, but they really just wanted to live for themselves. And notably, these Jews, they denied an afterlife. 
No judgment, no heaven or hell. They rejected the supernatural. Not surprisingly, they opposed Jesus. That's pretty much what he was about. Well, these Jews are known as the Sadducees. And they're the top religious rulers in Israel, which meant they had the most to lose with all the trouble Jesus was causing. So it's no wonder we find them now stepping up to take their turn to try and take Jesus out of the way. And that's what we find in Mark chapter 12. If you've got your Bible, open it now to Mark chapter 12. So we're back. You know, I sound like a broken record, but we're still in day three of Christ's final week of ministry and life. And again, on this third day, he's going to the temple, he's teaching. But this is the day of mounting opposition. The various leaders of the Jews, both political and spiritual, they find themselves uniting on this day. They're just coming together. They, they otherwise hate each other, but they're coming together to oppose Jesus because he, he, he's bad news for them all. Their goal is to trap Jesus in some statement, either against Israel or against Rome. If they can just discredit Jesus among the people or vilify Jesus among the Romans, their job of taking him out of the way is going to be so much easier. And along these lines, last week we watched as the Pharisees teamed up with the Herodians to try and trap Jesus in a political statement. That didn't work. They're forced to retreat and defeat. And now, though, the Sadducees, they were there. They were watching. And they saw the Pharisees fail. They're thinking to themselves, it's our turn. It's our turn now. We can get Jesus. We can trap him. They can, in one fell swoop, they can humiliate Jesus and the Pharisees at the same time. So that's what we're going to see here in Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. It's their turn. The Sadducees now rise up to try and trap Jesus. Now, as you've come to expect, it's not going to work. Jesus sees through it and puts them in their place. And again, his response is so profound, it's worth our full time and attention. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to make our way through this this passage like we always do, Mark 12, 18 through 27. It's Actually, pretty straightforward. No fancy outline is needed. We're just going to observe the trap of the Sadducees and the response of Jesus. Simple enough. Let's see what we can learn from the, in the process. Go through Mark 12, 18 through 27 now. It's a, it's a longer passage. We're going to read as we go. And without further ado, let's just jump in and see this, this next contest between Jesus and now the Sadducees. So join me in reading as we go. We're going to start in verse 18. Mark 12, verse 18, the text starts and says, Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. Now, we've actually encountered these guys before, the Sadducees before, but, but not by name. Remember the chief priests and the Sanhedrin? Most of those guys were Sadducees. Now, first things first, what, what's a Sadducee? What does that even mean? Well, during the time of Jesus, there are several different Jewish parties or groups, and they had different political and spiritual beliefs. There were the Ascends, the Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We're used to the Pharisees. They're the main antagonists to Jesus and the Gospels. Here, though, we've got the Sadducees, and again, they're, they're pretty much opposite, kind of like the Herodians. They're, they're opposite to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were theologically and, and, and spiritually conservative. The Sadducees they were theologically and, and, and politically liberal. They formed the wealthy ruling class among the Jews. They held almost all the positions of power. They're the ones who ran the temple. They were the priests. The chief priests always came from the Sadducees, or, or most often. 
And he exerted his will over the people. He profited off the people. Remember the Sadducees, these are the guys who turned the temple into a business operation. And that's why they were the ones who were really upset when Jesus cleansed the temple because he was hurting their business. And politically, the Sadducees, they don't like Rome. But they'll play ball because they like power. They knew that the Romans would let them keep their rule, their authority over the Jews, so long as they just kept them in line, that the people didn't revolt. If the people did revolt and the Romans had to step in, the Sadducees would be the first to go. They're the rulers. And this is another reason they hated Jesus. He's a political threat. Jesus had become so popular, and it's no secret he has no regard for them. So if enough people follow Jesus and things get out of hand, they could find the Romans breathing down their necks real soon. And that's what they feared. As a side note, after this in AD 70, when the people did revolt and the Romans did come and they destroyed Jerusalem, guess what happened to the Sadducees? They went extinct. Not a single one survived the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple when the Romans did come. And that's their fear here, that the Romans will will take them out if the people get out of hand because of this Jesus guy. Jesus poses a political threat to them, and he needs to go. What's really interesting, though, is they don't set a political trap for Jesus, but a theological trap. It's kind of ironic, because these guys were not theologians. They controlled the priesthood, but they were theologically super liberal. You probably saw that note in verse 18, that the parenthetical note where it says, they did not believe in a resurrection. And that's true. Most of the Jews did believe in a physical body, bodily resurrection at the end of the age, the righteous to eternal life, the unrighteous resurrected to eternal death, but not the Sadducees. Like the 20th century modernists, they they denied the resurrection. They denied a final judgment. They denied hell. They denied any afterlife. That's it. This, This life is your only life. When you die, you're just annihilated. Lights out, you fade to black, it's all over. And this, of course, really fit their lifestyle. They, they felt very justified in living for the here and the now. That's all there is. So you might as well live for the here and now. And they sought power and wealth as much as they could get. At least they're being consistent. Again, like Ecclesiastes said, if there is no judgment, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Again, though, they wanted to retain a belief in God. They, they weren't atheists. They believed in God. They just bent and changed scripture to fit their humanistic worldview. And they similarly, similarly used the priesthood as a means of, of gaining more power and, and more wealth. Now, speaking of bending scripture, the Sadducees were known for just outright changing scripture. It is denied the supernatural. So angels, demons, all that stuff in the Bible, that's not true. Let's take that out. In fact, they rejected the entire Old Testament except for the first five books. That's all they believed. The Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay, that's, that's Bible to them, but everything else they, they throw out. It's, it's not valid. And that's actually one reason they did not believe in the resurrection because in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the resurrection is not mentioned, they thought. So anyway, you put all this background together get the impression these guys have a trick up their sleeve because here they are, they're approaching Jesus, they're questioning him, and they're going to question him, the theological issue, on the resurrection. But they don't even believe in the resurrection. So you know this is not just a question, it's more of a trap. Let's keep reading. Let's see what they're going to say now. Verse 19. They come up, they question him saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And real quick, this is a reference to something God prescribed in Deuteronomy called Levirate marriage. This is where a husband died and he had no child, no heir, and his brother, though, would, would marry his widowed wife. This only applied to an unmarried brother, and the purpose was to keep the first husband's inheritance within the family and the tribe. The Sadducees, they had no problem with this custom. It's just that if this is true and resurrection is true, it's going to create some, some laughable circumstances. So let's keep going. Verse 20. So with this in mind, they, they have this scenario. Verse 20, they says, There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So do you get the question here? Which it's really not a question, it's an objection, but... You've got these seven brothers, and they marry this woman one by one, each one dying in the process with no heir. Finally, she dies, but in the resurrection, they're all back. Which, which one is her husband? None of them had kids with her, so they all have equal claim on her, so to speak. Which one gets her? Now, the real question I have with this hypothetical situation is, why wasn't this wife arrested? Right? She's clearly a husband killer. All these, you know, Dateline episodes we watch. When one spouse dies, it's almost always the other spouse. We've got one woman. She goes through seven husbands. You know she had something to do with this. But anyway, that's not the point. The real point of the scenario is to show how ridiculous a notion a final resurrection would be. This type of argument and logic is called reduction to, the, to absurdity. It's where you try and show a belief to be untrue because of its ridiculous implications. And that's what they're saying. If, this is, if there's a resurrection, look, at, look how ridiculous this would sound. This can't be. And surely this was a stock conundrum the Sadducees used in their debates with the Pharisees. It was meant to discredit Jesus as a teacher and expose him as foolish. I mean, what kind of Messiah would he be if he can't even answer one of these little theological riddles, which they believed was not answerable? They're just trying to expose Jesus as being ignorant. But you know that's not going to work. And in reality, they are the ignorant ones, as Jesus is going to point out now in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. In reality, Jesus exposes their ignorance because they doubted the Word of God, and the power of God. Not only did they wrongly wipe out the majority of the Old Testament, but they failed to rightly grasp the little bit they held on to. If they truly had read and heeded even the first five books of the Bible, wouldn't they, wouldn't they have seen a God of total power? Wouldn't they have seen a God who created, who judged, who redeemed with His mighty arm? And surely for that God, raising people from the dead is not too difficult. Jesus says they are mistaken. That word means to go astray, to wander. The Sadducees were so deluded by their own lust for wealth and for power that they wandered from the clear testimony of God's word and they ended up denying his own power. 
So Jesus proceeds to set them straight first on the power of God and then secondly on the word of God. So verse 25, he sets them straight on the power of God. He says, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And this is the power of God. Of course it's no trouble for God to to raise people from the dead. And Jesus here reveals that's God's will. And he's speaking with a clear divine authority, like always. More specifically, here's where the Sadducees went wrong. They were so earthly-minded, they could only conceive of the next life in terms of the present life. So they took for granted that in the next life, of course, there's going to be marriage. Life would go on pretty much like it does here, except in a more utopian fashion. Of course, they didn't get this from God's revelation. They just applied their own reason and logic, and, and they created an idea of the afterlife that sounded good to them. And even though these guys reject the afterlife, they still have a very man-centered idea or concept of what it would look like. And you know what? Just about every other world religion or worldview is guilty of the same thing. People naturally impose their ideals of this present life onto the next life to come up with their idea of what heaven will be like. For example, take Islam. Their idea of paradise or heaven is actually quite carnal. The Quran places or describes paradise in physical terms. It's a place where your every wish is immediately fulfilled. You wear costly clothes, attend exquisite banquets, recline on couches inlaid with gold and precious stones. You perpetually rejoice in the presence of parents and children and wives. It's like a big family reunion. You live in a house built of solid gold, built by angels. And of course, let's not leave out the promise of 72 virgins. As you may know, righteous men who enter paradise are wed to 72 voluptuous virgin wives. These are described as perfect women and eternally young, all to satisfy the man's every desire. So side note, women who enter heaven, they're given just one man. And I'm not sure, that could be a good thing, that could be a bad thing. I'm not, I don't know. But literally, just about every worldview is like this. Their concept of heaven is very man-centered and and really hedonistic. It's a place where all of your desires and appetites are finally fulfilled. But this sits in stark contrast to the idea of heaven presented by biblical Christianity. According to the Bible, what makes heaven great? Simply this, that God is there and he dwells with his people. Revelation 21.3 Yes, there's joy, there's satisfaction, but not because your every carnal desire is satisfied. There's a deeper joy and satisfaction found purely in your your fellowship with God and Christ. And additionally, the focus in heaven is not living in a mansion or playing out your wildest dreams, but worship. The primary activity in heaven, according to the Bible, is worship. There's this distinct God-centeredness to heaven in the Bible, where God is being exalted at every turn. Just read Revelation, and you'll see passage after passage where all the saints and angels gather to sing God's praises. And some people wonder, aren't you going to get kind of bored of singing God's praises? And like Augustus said, well, you'll get bored if your love for God runs out, but that's not going to happen in heaven. So listen, you be the judge. You have all these worldviews and world religions with their different depictions of the afterlife, 
and they're all notably man-centered. And then you have biblical Christianity, which is notably God-centered. Which ones seem like they're made up by men? And which one rings of divine authenticity? And I actually believe this is a very compelling argument for biblical Christianity, for this vision of heaven. It's not something men would make up. All the others, that sounds like a group of guys made that up. But this has rings of divine. But the Sadducees, even though they deny the afterlife, they're just as guilty of this man-centeredness. They can't help but think of the next life in terms of the present life. And that explains their marriage conundrum. But Jesus puts them in their place with this clear revelation. For he says, in the resurrection, there's no more marriage. But people are like the angels. That doesn't mean you become an angel. You become like an angel, meaning you no longer marry and you live forever. So yes, in case you're wondering, you may have heard, there is no human institution of marriage in heaven. This is not to suggest that our earthly lives and relationships are of no consequence, like you're not going to recognize your spouse or your kids in heaven. That's not true. Of course you will. It's just that in heaven, the purpose for the human institution of marriage is it's fulfilled and it's not needed anymore. And do you know what that is? Do you know that the ultimate purpose of marriage? When God instituted marriage, the ultimate purpose was to prefigure and reveal the union of Christ and his bride, the church. So actually, there is marriage in heaven. One marriage between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, Revelation 19, make this clear. In heaven, God is our Father. We are his children. That makes all of us like brothers and sisters. And you don't need marriage when you got just brothers and sisters. Instead, Jesus, our Lord, he serves as a type of husband over the redeemed, the church, loving them and leading them forever. So what Jesus says here about marriage is new. It's actually not entirely new. Yet the Sadducees were prevented from even coming close to this truth since they ignorantly imposed this life on the next. And I want to say here, you too need to be cautioned against thinking of the next life like this life. It's not the same. There is a resurrection, and after that, a new and everlasting life with God. Others, or some, not with God. But the Bible doesn't reveal everything about what that existence is going to be like. For the redeemed, we will live on a new earth, and there will be a new heavens. We will dwell with God and the Lamb, Christ Jesus. But the Bible doesn't say everything there is to know. You just have to realize, resurrected life, we're not talking about reanimation. We're talking about transformation. Life does not simply go on as we know it. It's going to be different. You will be changed in some hard-to-describe way. It's almost impossible for us creatures to really understand what life will be like then in a resurrected life and body. Think about the caterpillar. Does it have any concept of what it's going to look like when it pops out of that cocoon? There's no idea. And, and think about how different life is. Before, it used to move at 10 inches or 10 feet per hour. Let's call it 10 feet per hour. That's how fast a caterpillar life goes by. And then it's going to be able to fly when it comes out. Can it just even comprehend the total change in reality it's going to see? Of course not. And nor do we really understand what it will be like when the perishable will be raised imperishable. We just know it's going to be different. And Paul actually addressed and responds to this question as to the nature of resurrected life in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He talks about this, what, what that life will be like. He doesn't say too much, but he gives an important comparison. He compares this present life and this present body to a seed, a seed that's sown to the ground, and, and that seed then dies like we will die. But from that seed, though, springs a new life, and that new life has a new form. It's not a seed anymore. It's a plant. It looks different. And so will be our new life after death and resurrection in some way. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 43 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I love how one commentator, David Garland, put it, describing this. It's like trying to explain to a person who's lived their entire life in the Arctic Circle what a tropical beach is like. You can try and describe palm trees and sandy beaches, colorful birds, fish, shells, coral, but they have no concept for these things. They have no way of understanding them. Until they get to the tropics themselves and see it for themselves, it's, it's maybe just best to tell them what won't be there. In the tropics, there won't be snow no polar bears, no ice flurries, no freezing winds. And the Bible often uses the same tactic when describing eternity. What's it going to be like? What's going to be there? Well, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard for us to, to grasp that. Instead, the Bible tells us notably what's not going to be there. There's no night. There will be no more need for the sun, the moon, light, because it says God will illumine everything. There's no curse. All things are made new. There is no unrighteousness or unrighteous people. All will have been made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. There is no sin or Satan. Our great enemies will have been vanquished. And there is no sickness, mourning, crying, pain, or death. All these things have passed away. We can say a little bit more about future resurrected life. The Bible says a little bit more, but not a lot more. We'll save that for another time. But just beware imposing what you know about this life onto the next. Beware of thinking like he- uh, beware of thinking of heaven like an earthly utopia. And beware for sure of listening to anything Hollywood says about heaven. We just get that clear as well. I can't tell you how many Christians actually believe in unbiblical Hollywood theology. What they see in a TV or movie like, oh, that's what heaven's going to be like. Like that old Patrick Swayze movie, Ghost. How many Christians actually believe that their deceased loved ones still roam around, still talk to them, they still turn lights on and off for them, they're still hanging around, they have unfinished business, just totally nonsense. And we could go on, but, but please, if you do me one favor, don't believe anything you see on TV or the movies about heaven. Just read the Bible. And that's what the Sadducees failed to do. That was their problem. They weren't going off of what the Bible said. And getting back to the Sadducees, their whole question was based in ignorance. Their little conundrum was quickly dismissed by Jesus. It didn't even apply. They were simply, he says, mistaken. Why? Because they doubted the power of God. Of course God can raise the dead, and he will. And in that day, marriage will be no more. There's no more need for marriage. So their whole scenario is void. He just throws it out. But it doesn't stop there. Not only did they doubt the power of God, he says in verse 24, they also doubted the word of God. And so he's going to respond to this as well. We'll actually finish the text 
Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The Old Testament talked about resurrection. Jesus could have quoted some clear texts like Daniel 12.2. Speaking of the end of the age, says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's a pretty clear resurrection passage in the Old Testament, Daniel 12.2. And there are others, but here Jesus chooses this little passage from Exodus. And why do you think he did that? Well, remember, these Sadducees, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And the point he's trying to make is that they don't even get those right. For God's power and his intention to raise the dead are clearly taught even there. So Jesus draws upon this burning bush passage, which everybody knew. Every Jew knew this, Exodus 3. Passage where Moses, he's, he's pastoring the flock. He sees this bush, it's on fire, but it's not being consumed, so he goes up to it, and then God speaks to him from the burning bush. This is when God calls and commissions Moses to be his representative to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. But of note is how God reveals himself. And Jesus quotes Exodus 3, verse 6, where God says, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And the question is, what's the point that Jesus is making by this quote? And it's pretty simple. It all hinges on the tense of this verb, I am. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am their God. Even though these patriarchs had been dead for hundreds of years, God still says he is their God, even though they're dead, because they're not out of existence. And the point is, would God claim to be the God of those who no longer exist? The living God would hardly identify himself as the God of corpses, of people who have gone out of existence. Rather, God is presently their God because they still exist. Not on this earth, but, but they live. And God is still their God and he still has a relationship with them. Evidenced by the repetition of, of God's name before their name every time. And speaking of this relationship... Remember, God made an everlasting covenant with these patriarchs. But God's promises to them would have been grossly unfulfilled and pointless if they could only look for fulfillment in their lifetimes. But these guys knew this was not the case, that God had more waiting for them on the other side. And that's precisely, by the way, what Hebrews 11 says. Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hebrews 11:13 says, All these men died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. These guys realize, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all believers should, that death is not the last word. That's not where the story ends. And what a pathetic defeat it would be for God if death had the last word. You die, that's it. Nothing God can do about it. 
But that's not the case. God is the God of the living, not the dead. He created us for relationship with Him, and that's going to continue after this life. This earth is not our final home either. Our relationship with God will not be terminated by death. Philippians 3, 20, 21, important verse, where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. See, the Sadducees drew the wrong conclusions about the next life. They failed to see the true nature of God and His redeeming, everlasting relationship with men. They also failed to appreciate the link between God's covenant faithfulness and resurrection. There is going to be a life after this life, after death. For death cannot have the final word among God's creation. God will have the final word. That means life because he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Sadducees were greatly mistaken for they were ignorant of the word of God and the power of God. But Jesus put them in their place upholding the word of God and the power of God. And he fended off their attack. That's where the text ends. There's more that more goes on in the temple. We'll pick that up next week. But for now, I just want to ask, are you perhaps likewise ignorant of the Word of God and the power of God? Or do you, like the Sadducees, find yourself denying the Word of God or the power of God? The Sadducees, they got these vastly wrong. And so he says they wandered from the truth into heretical error. But do not likewise untether yourself from the truth. Instead, make sure you are constantly affirming the Word of God and the power of God. And can I talk about that for a second? Affirming the Word of God first. I mentioned earlier, there's so many attacks against the Word of God, aren't there? Is it really true? Does it have all these errors? And many have since abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, but, but not Jesus. At every turn, Jesus upheld the highest view of the word possible. Did you know that? He had such a high view of Scripture. And you know what? The, the main reason I will not and cannot abandon a super high view of the Scripture, that it's inerrant, free from error, it's inspired, it comes from God, it's infallible, it's truthful, it's sufficient. The main reason I, I can't abandon this view of Scripture is that it's good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for Jesus. That's what he believed. So it's good enough for me. Jesus held to the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. So who am I to say otherwise? I'm going to be in his corner. Do you realize, even in our little passage today, Jesus, number one, affirmed the Mosaic authorship of the Torah. And number two, he upheld what's called verbal plenary inspiration, meaning every word is inspired. Every word is true and came from God. Because he based his whole argument here on the tense of one verb. That's how much he believed every word was inspired. Even the tense was inspired. His whole point hinged on God saying, not I was their God, but I am their God. Elsewhere, for example, in John 10, Jesus bases an entire argument on just one word of the Old Testament. The point is, Jesus truly believed Every single word of Scripture came from God. Therefore, it's without error. 
It's truthful. It's sufficient. And that's why Jesus constantly relied on God's Word, right? How did Jesus fend off temptations by Satan? By relying on God's Word. How did He reveal the Gospel? By relying on God's Word. How did He settle spiritual disputes? By relying on God's Word. Jesus constantly relied on Scripture to guide Him. And such an example for us, we should do the same. So affirm the Word of God. That's true in your own life. And then rely on it. Read it, use it, wield it in your own daily battles against sin, temptation, even persecution. And the first takeaway, you too need to retain a high view of God's Word and live accordingly. Cling to it. Secondly, we can say affirm the power of God. Unlike the Sadducees, you need to affirm the Word of God and then secondly, a really high view of the power of God. God is supreme. He possesses limitless power. He created you. He can sustain you. The power you need to live for Him, to worship Him, to overcome sin and temptation, that power, it's available to you for those who have faith, like we've seen countless times in Mark's Gospel. But more specifically here, we want to affirm that God has power even over death. And that's our ultimate hope, isn't it? That God will rescue us from the the great and final enemy of death. That it doesn't have the last word. That God has the last word. He's that powerful. Sin is the problem. Our sins have killed us. For the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God's presence. We deserve to be cut off in a relationship from Him. Because of our sin. But in love, God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to redeem for himself a bride, the church. And that's why he died on the cross, paying the price of his own life. He died the death that we deserved in order to give us a life that we don't deserve, reconciled to God forever, that eternal life. And now through faith in him, you can be saved. First, he will spiritually raise you. He'll give you new life. He'll make you born again. You go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. There is first a spiritual resurrection, and by faith in Him, He will justify you, redeem you, save you, make you alive. And then later to come, those who are in Him, there will be a physical resurrection where you will live on with Him forever. All of us have to die. We must die because of the curse. But you don't have to die twice. You realize there's a second death. It's referred to as a final judgment. All those who in this life, like the Sadducees, live for themselves. They disregard God and His Son. They don't submit to Him. They have no payment for their sins. So when they have the first death, they stand before God in the final judgment. They have no payment. They'll be forced to pay themselves. They'll be cast away from God's presence even though they too will be resurrected, but they'll be eternally separated from God. That's the second death, Revelation says. And you don't want to part in the second death. It lasts forever. You don't want to be there. But realize the second birth is the answer to the second death. If you're born twice, meaning you're born again, 
then you'll only die once. You won't have a part in that second death, that final judgment. Rather, God will deliver you from that ultimate death. For as Christ was raised in victory, so will you be. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55 says, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus defeated death itself when he rose from the dead. And we will follow him in this. And that's where God's power really comes into play. Because that's something we for sure can't do on our own. We have no power over death. Can you stop the first death? No, you cannot. Can you stop the second death on your own? No, you, you and I will just be judged. By his grace and his mercy, he can make us alive and spare us from that second death. And that's our, that's our ultimate hope. Ultimately, we're, we're counting on God's power through Christ to deliver us from, from the ultimate grave. So for those who believe, affirm God's power. Rely on it, count on it. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy, don't be ashamed of God or the gospel. Rather, know in whom you have believed and be convinced that he is able to guard what you have entrusted to him until that day. Be reminded of this. Be assured that, Romans 8, 38, be assured that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not even death can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, if you know Him. So count on that. Depend on that. Hope on that. Unlike the Sadducees, affirm the power of God in your life. And then live victoriously in the resurrected power of Christ, now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we we affirm you are the living God. You're the God who lives. You're the God of the living. And we thank you for, for bringing us to life, making us living, even though we first were spiritually dead. Though we are alive here and now, though our hearts beat and we, we take in oxygen, we, we live and move, we're, we're, we're dead men and women standing. We're spiritually dead and cut off from you because of our sin. And this rebellion merits a second death, a final death, a judgment, a separation from you and your goodness forever. But here we have to always, every day, remember how you sent Christ, the eternal Son, the perfect one, to die. He did not deserve a death. Yet he died. He was separated from you as he was made to be sin on our behalf so that we would both be spared from a second death and be given a second birth. Jesus accomplished both on the cross. As we place our faith in him, as you give us that grace, you make us alive, you bring us to a new birth, and in one fell swoop we are delivered from that final death. We, we remember this. We need to be remembering this and thanking you for this. Those who are in Christ, we have already experienced resurrection. We were spiritually dead. We are now spiritually alive. You have spiritually raised us from the grave. May we live accordingly, live a renewed life. You have transformed us. Give us continued grace and strength to live that way and to bring you honor. And we just finish by looking forward to that that physical resurrection, that the consummation of our redemption. There will be a finish line. 
Christ comes back, we'll be with him raised forever in perfect righteousness. We yearn for that. Like creation itself, we yearn, we groan for that final redemption. In the meantime, may we live expectantly, righteously, joyously, knowing what our Savior has done for us. And like these Sadducees, holding high your word and your power, Lord, and living accordingly for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.